0: Hi there, and welcome to the organic stream talk show. I'm your host, Aline Murphy, and this is episode four and the final episode of our multi story building organics recycling special. And before we jump in, I have a couple of events to mention that are on our radar this week. The International Compost Roundtable is coming up during COP21 on December 4th at 3 p.m. in La Bourget in Paris, organized by Zero Waste Europe this event will bring together leading practitioners, cutting edge researchers, and Global South representatives of local farmers and cooperatives of waste pickers to look into climate solutions around organic waste, particularly exploring the intersection between zero waste and agroecology. It's going to be a very interesting event, and the Organic Stream team will be there. If you're interested in attending, go to Zero Waste Europe's website and click on upcoming events or click on the link on our podcast episode page below as well. And the United States Composting Council's annual conference and trade show, Compost 2016, is coming up soon as well, from January 25th to the 28th in Jacksonville, Florida. It's a great event, covering the latest in collecting organics, manufacturing and using compost and producing renewable energy from organics. And of particular interest to listeners of this programme will be the session on Measuring Diversion Improvements from Enhanced Tenant Engagement at Multifamily Dwellings, presented by Lily Kelly of Global Green. So if you're interested in attending this event, go to compostingcouncil.org to register or click on the link on our page. And now, on to the show.
1: multifamily separation program, especially for organics.
2: I'm a real believer in multiple educational intelligences
3: rather than just looking at a printed form. And we work with the property manager so the tenants know ahead of time that we'll be there on a certain day. We find out, you know, what is the barrier for them to participate.
0: In part one of our best practices episode, we took a look at the strategies for building strong partnerships and for a successful rollout. In this episode, we're picking up where we left off and exploring more best practices from cities around the world. We left off episode 3 discussing Milan's outreach campaign as part of their rollout strategy, and one of the key ingredients of their campaign was meeting tenants face-to-face, in the apartment buildings or at community meetings. And this is a cornerstone of any outreach campaign. I want to look at this in a little more detail because engaging tenants is not always as simple as just heading over to the building and knocking on the door. It's about gaining trust as well. In episode 2, we discussed in detail the importance of understanding the demographics you're working with. Reaching people where they are, either online or offline, at community gatherings, social media spaces, on the street at local festivals, and so on. Also, making sure to have native speakers of different languages on staff is crucial. This can go a long way to getting people to engage and trust you. But there's more to it than that. Remember Alexa Keelty, member of the residential zero waste team at San Francisco's Department of Environment? Department of Environment, this is Alexa. Hi, Alexa, it's Eileen. Hey, Eileen. Alexa told me that in San Francisco, the staff work directly with building managers to create individualized outreach programs for the building. Again, this means working with different demographics customising the outreach materials and so on. They also go door to door to deliver kitchen caddies and outreach materials year in, year out. And because of this, they have some great experience in knowing what to do to gain people's trust and make it work.
3: So after we set up the programs, then we have a whole outreach team called Environment Now. It's a green careers program. So somewhat of a job training program, but we hire from the community, so we get a lot of native Spanish speakers, native Chinese speakers. We have a native Russian speaker and a native Filipino speaker on staff. And so those folks will actually do what we call a green apartments, which is essentially door-to-door outreach within apartment buildings at about 5 to 7 p.m. in the evening Um, and we're hopefully we get people when they're coming back from work and we work with the property manager so the tenants know ahead of time that we'll be there on the certain days we find out what languages are, are needed so we have outreach material that we send to property manager to post within the building ahead of time in the elevator so it's not a surprise visit and what's great is if the property manager can actually come with us when we do outreach. That is really helpful or the resident manager who's even better because they typically know more tenants. That person can actually conduct the door-to-door outreach with us. That's really helpful because more people are willing to open their doors if there's somebody they know.
0: This is great information here. First off, it seems the most important thing is to make the outreach personal. Alexa says they hire people from within the community they're reaching out to Another thing they do is work with the building manager to give people notice that they'll be coming, of course. And finally, and most importantly, the trick to getting people to open their doors is to have a building or resident manager come with them. When we spoke to Lily Kelly of Global Green in her office in San Francisco, she said a similar thing. Having a tenant or a property manager come with us when we were doing the door-to-door outreach initially, especially if it's a tenant who knows other people in the building. I think we got a lot more people answering their doors because it was their neighbor who was knocking and saying, hey, I want to introduce you to this person who's doing this composting project, and uh, we're going to have this at our building, and it's going to be really great. Um, I think that really changed people's perspectives on it right at the outset of, oh, this is something my neighbors are interested in. Gaining trust is a big part of getting people involved and interested in the programme. Now, in a big city with a lot of buildings, it's not always easy to manage or finance such initiatives. Which is why it's a good idea to find recycling champions in the building, either a tenant or building manager, and support them in promoting the programme. Seattle has a great volunteer program for building managers that does exactly that, the Friends of Recycling and Composting program. And I'll get to that a little later in the episode. Another great tactic is to work with people that have some social significance, popular figures within the community or local celebrities. This can really boost a program's image and make it more attractive. So that's door-to-door outreach. Now let's look at open events, or what are often called lobby events. Setting up an event in the building where people can come along to get information and perhaps pick up equipment is a common strategy. Many programs do this and it works quite well. But to get people to take time out of their day to attend, that requires some strategic thinking. There are two main tricks you can use that have been shown to give results. And to learn about them, I wanted to take a trip back down memory lane to one of the first interviews I ever did here on the Organic Stream. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Stéline Murphy, and we've got a half-hour episode for you today, interviewing two guests, both from London. This is our second episode, when I interviewed Rockia Yaman and Claire Brass, director of Seed Foundation, about her food scrap recycling research programme in urban environments. Claire was working with an inner city estate, the Maiden Lane Estates, in a disadvantaged area of London, and she told me about her difficulties in engaging the residents, who at the time had much more immediate problems to deal with. But by using some clever techniques, she was able to overcome these challenges and get people participating in the programme anyway.
4: You need to get under the skin of the people, your sort of primary stakeholders. Now, often the thing which is driving you, so in our case, the environmental challenge of food waste, is not the thing at all which may be driving a resident of a housing estate. Uh, The thing which worked quite well, and I think this is a really good trick, is we piggybacked on an event that was happening at the estate. Just when we started the project, there was a barbecue event coming up on the estate, And we went along to that event and we set up a stall with a poster. All we did really was go along with a whole stall full of little tomato plants and a bucket of food waste and a bucket of compost and just talk to people and say, did you know that your food waste can look like this one day? And then it turns into this. And most people were quite surprised, but it was an opportunity for us to start a conversation with them. And I think the key thing here is, if you're recruiting, is to go to where people are already going to be going and just give them a little little tiny reward, just to have a first point of contact. And after that, we managed to get about 15 to come to our first workshop. So that, that was a really good way in.
0: So there we have two of the best strategies for getting people to attend. Using existing meetings or events at a building for your own outreach event and to make sure to have rewards. Other programmes, such as Seattle, often advertise their educational presentation sessions in buildings as the place where people can collect their free containers. Another great idea is to provide refreshments because, as programme managers have told me, people tend to come if there's food. One of the most important goals of an organics recycling programme is to change behaviour and to get people to understand the impact their actions will have. And this is where education comes in. We touched on education before in episode 2, focusing strongly on the importance of multi educational materials. Today we go further and focus on the excellent education strategy that Marcia Rutan, Recycling Programme Manager at Seattle Public Utilities, employs for their organics programme. Marcia Rutan has been working in education for a long time, and she's been greatly supported in her work thanks to Seattle's progressive recycling laws. In 2011, it became mandatory to provide organic carts in multi-story buildings, and they implemented a full composting mandate for the whole city in January this year. Fines for too much food waste in garbage containers will start to be issued very soon, in January 2016. Now, from researching their program, I was inspired by the work that they do educating people. When I got Marcia on the phone, the first thing I asked was to start from the beginning. Just what are the basic building blocks for their educational program?
2: So, in terms of the education, what we find across the board is that property managers especially appreciate posters that can be placed above the carts. And then we also have labels for the carts, and all of these have pictures as well as wording. And then we have our basic flyers, and we use two basic flyers for this program. One is called the Where Does It Go flyer, and it has color coding for all three waste streams, the recycling, which is blue, the compostables, which are green, and then whatever's left over, which is the garbage, which is sort of the gray-black color. And then we have one other flyer, which is basically Food Plus Compostables guideline. It's all green, and it's just to make it clearer to people since it's a new program, what goes into the compost cart. And it also provides a few, why is this important, as well as tips for storing and carrying out material. So it just gives more information. But those are the two basic flyers that we use with this program. So these are foundational for the property managers. They really rely on those flyers, the labels, and the posters, and the carts, and they're all color-coded. And that is a... um, That partly came from, where are we now, about 2007, 2008, we actually held focus groups with community-based organizations, which were primarily constituted of folks who were immigrants or English as another language for them. I won't say second language because we know some of these folks have several languages under their belts. But they said they wanted the colour coding and they wanted not a yes-no type poster, which was confusing to them, but basically just where do things go in all categories. So that's what these informational flyers came out of and the colour coding.
0: So flyers, labels and posters are foundational elements for property managers in Seattle. Using focus groups to understand what residents would prefer gave them a better idea of how to design their materials. Colour coding is a crucial element. Many cities agree that this is key. It's easy to understand and transcends any language barriers as well. Another important element that also overcomes language barriers, and for those with reading difficulties as well, is pictures. And it was Alexa that said to me at one point during our interview that a lot of people, no matter what language they speak, tend not to really read the flyers. So pictures can really help. (coughs) One important thing here I want to bring up is the design of the materials. We often see too many design mistakes. So materials are either overcrowded with information and pictures, the signage is unclear or hard to follow. Colours and contrast is also something to take into account as well. If there's either too much going on or it's just in plain black and white, people won't want to look at it. The more well-designed, clear, and pleasant to look at the materials are, the better it will be. So, educational tools such as flyers, handouts, and stickers can all be classed as passive educational tools. Other very popular passive education tools are promotional tools like door hangers or magnets, and of course, websites, apps, and social media. Marcia mentioned websites and social media as tools they like to use for education and outreach, and this was the same for all the cities we interviewed. In this day and age, when so many of us rely on smartphones and the internet as a primary source of information, having an online presence can really make a big difference. They allow program managers to interact directly with residents, share information quickly and easily, and to answer questions. And the key here is to choose the right platform for your target group. For example, younger generations don't tend to use Facebook as much as they use Snapchat or Instagram. The DSNY in New York have currently started an Instagram account to try to reach a younger audience. And they also have Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Flickr accounts as well. So there are a growing number of platforms And when designing your outreach, it is important to adapt your strategy. What interested me greatly in Seattle City as a case study and Marcia's approach was her use of a more active educational strategy. At many of the properties, Marcia conducts one-to-one on-site presentations that seem to go down very well with the residents.
2: And we use that Where Does It Go flyer, and we take props with us so people get a hands-on experience with putting things into the right color bin. So I take a, two big bags of stuff, I distribute it to folks, teach them how to use the flyer, and then they come and put it into the bin they think it goes in, and then we discuss it. And this is a very popular game. People really love it. I'm a real believer in multiple educational intelligences rather than just looking at a printed form, Uh, you know, that people get their hands on things and are kinesthetic as well, get up and move. So I think all of those are really important.
0: This idea of providing a mix of different educational methods to help reach people is an interesting one. And practising the physical act of putting organics in the right bin can definitely help make the lesson stick in a person's mind. With on-site presentations like these, it's easy to see how they can help build a positive relationship between tenants and the program. Now, Seattle has 5,000 multi-story properties, and half of the population of the city lives in multi-story buildings. That's a lot of people to reach out to. I asked Marcia if they had the budget to be able to reach everyone this way, and she said no. But what they do have is the volunteer program that I mentioned before.
2: So we run a train-the-trainer program called Friends of Recycling and Composting where property managers or their designated representatives come and take a two-hour training to get motivated and to get educated on where to stuff go and best practices at the property as well as how to motivate residents. And people provide really high marks on this training saying that they Basically came just to get the free buckets, which we use as the hook to get them there. But they left actually profoundly motivated to actually go back and work with their residents. So it's been really effective.
0: While it's important to educate tenants, many reports show that the most effective education is focused on property managers. This is why the Friends of Recycling and Composting program
2: is such a great tool.
0: But educating building managers and owners is not
2: without challenges. There's quite a bit of turnover of property managers, so we'll just get them educated and inspired, and then they'll move on to another property, which sometimes can work in our favor because then they go on to help that other property get going, but sometimes we just basically lose them. And then there's also resistance by some property managers. They hide the cart. They don't want the residents really to use it because they don't want to deal with the ick factor or a mess. They perceive a mess going to happen. So we have the missing carts. The turnover is just something that we do not really have a good way to deal with. We just train, train, train. And, and then, like I say, some go on to other properties and actually help out those other properties get going. But in terms of resistance, we do have the drivers do report missing carts and we can actually just sort those and find out what are the larger properties cuz those are the ones we go after and then we target them you know we give them a call we go on site we find out you know what is the barrier for them to participate And we work with them, troubleshoot and provide education, anything we can to help them feel more confident to get going. And often it is, you know, they're very busy. It can be a time issue. Another issue is fear. And and we just try to deal with those fears. So a lot of those have gotten up and going.
0: One thing about education is that it's always ongoing. There's no real end to the work that needs to be done. Especially for a city like Seattle, with a program that's very comprehensive and can still cause confusion over what goes where. We gained a lot of insight into what tools work best for educating both tenants and property managers. But the most inspiring thing to take away from the Seattle case study is their commitment to constantly refining their strategy year after year to help clear up any confusion.
2: We continually listen to our customers. We do have a wonderful look it up tool on our website, which is one of the most used, you know, links on our website where hundreds and hundreds of items are listed and the best disposal practices are provided for and you know, just so many different materials. So that's been a big help. And we also are continually listening when people give us feedback about what isn't working about the flyer you know what might need revision so each year when we go to revise the flyer we try to make it more clear and more useful for people and you know it's not not going to always meet everybody's personal style of education but we just do our best to we we really try to listen to the customer rather than thinking we're the experts you know We are experts, but we also know that it's incredibly important to listen to the customer. You know, we learned a lot through the community based social marketing. We really do employ those principles as much as we can. And so listening to our customers is very key.
5: Bank District building right now. We're on the eighth floor and uh, we're walking into uh, the refuge room. and They're out of compost bags in this one.
0: We're back with EcoSafe Zero Waste's Jason Sanders and Jessica Aldridge of Athens Services in Los Angeles.
5: So we, we have two compost bags in here and do have one aluminum can.
0: Here We're following them as they conduct their monthly inspections of the trash rooms on every floor of the old Bank District building.
5: We do monthly site visits here to check each floor and we mark down the odour level, the cleanliness level, contamination level, participation and what the bag count looks like in the dispenser system.
0: Tracking results. This is one of the most valuable tools to have in an organics recycling programme, especially a pilot programme. The type of information to track can be materials collected, contamination rate, challenges faced, key contacts and the amount of outreach employed. Compiling a detailed history of all these factors will be invaluable in moving forward and to give accurate information when presenting programme results. I'd like to take a moment now to thank StreamSort for making this episode possible. StreamSort is a data collection tool designed for quick, easy and accurate material characterization studies and analysis in the waste management sector. The use of data today is still based on archaic methods of collection and analysis. StreamSort brings data collection technology to the next level by removing the cost of data entry reducing the risks for mistakes, and by making compiling and analyzing data much easier. Request a free demo on StreamSort.com. And now, back to the show. In LA, we were impressed by the strength of their tracking system and their hands-on approach.
5: So what we've seen so far with this program is a high level of participation and a low contamination rate. To this uh, date, we've done three site visits. And on each of those three site visits, uh, we have one to two standard traditional poly bags in the compost bin, and that's it.
0: As you can see, by tracking results in person, Jason and Jessica have a much clearer understanding of how successful their program is. By visiting the building in person, they have a chance to spot problem areas and recognize any trends happening in the buildings. Of course, one of the most important things to track is the contamination rate. Keeping an eye on how contaminated the stream is and being able to react quickly to any issues is very useful, especially for the processor who will be dealing with the materials on the back end.
1: From the hauler standpoint, the collector and the processor standpoint, is that we have to make sure that the material that we're collecting is good material and I would say one of the hardest programs to enact is a multifamily separation program, especially for organics. And so, through this process, we just want to keep a very watchful eye on that product to make sure that it is as clean as possible because if we're processing this material and it's making it back to our sort light, so when it comes back to our materials recovery facility, we have a, a sort line that it goes up to and then the materials that's not supposed to be in there is pulled off, then it is shipped off to our compost facility in Victorville. It is screened once again, then it is compost and that compost is then screened once again. So we want to make sure that we have as little amount as contaminants as possible or you know, we'll, we'll end up with a more strenuous process. And also that, that gives us an idea if we need to send out more education and outreach to the residents here, to the management, to the maintenance, whatever it may be. So that also directs how we're going to move forward with the program.
0: So tracking is not only useful to help you understand and optimize your program, but it can also help shape your program as well. Frequent site visits are an excellent way to keep a close eye on what's going on and allow you to quickly react to any problems that come up. This, as we said, is extremely valuable, especially for pilot programs that are looking to expand in the future. Every organics programme is shaped by the regulatory structure it exists within. It can be supported by this structure, or it can be hindered by it. Throughout the show we've come across examples of how policy has impacted on the programmes we've covered, and it's no coincidence that the cities we chose for this case study have some of the most progressive laws and policies in place today. Cities that put in place ambitious recycling targets, landfill or incineration diversion goals, or bans on organics going to landfills or incinerators as part of a sustainable waste management strategy are really important. They can create the necessary leverage needed to push for organics recycling. When supported and enforced properly, they can be a critical driver for collection programmes. Every city we spoke to has some sort of zero waste vision or a zero waste commitment with ambitious recycling targets, most notably San Francisco, which leads the way in terms of ambitious policy, with just five years to reach zero waste in 2020. The financial tools used by policymakers to promote organics recycling are important. Pay-as-you-throw systems for waste have been shown to greatly increase participation in recycling schemes in municipalities all around the world. If buildings are charged more for waste collection than food scrap collection, it gives managers a direct financial incentive to participate in the programme.
1: Bring system never work so effectively as curbside system do. The true springboard towards a zero waste has always been the implementation of a kerbside scheme targeting also the organics. With such a system, you quite easily jump up to 70% separate collection, 80% separate collection. Then after that, in order to move further towards 100%, what we do next is the implementation of a pay as scheme. And this increases separate collection by a further 10%, but also it remarkably decreases the overall uh, waste risings.
0: But in a city where buildings are serviced by private haulers, municipalities can't always control the price of collection. In some cases, where landfills are publicly owned, they can control how expensive it is to send the waste to these public facilities. Municipalities can raise tipping fees for garbage and tax rates for landfilling or incineration, so that recycling once again becomes the more desirable option. This in turn will mean buildings are charged more for garbage collection and will give them a reason to start composting. There are also policy measures that indirectly impact on programs, which we saw in the case of Milan, with the ban on shoots and the plastic bag ban that led to biobags becoming more available. But perhaps what had the greatest impact on the cities we covered are the mandates that require composting or that organics stay out of waste bins.
2: Yeah, basically, we mentioned the two policies that have been the most critical. One, requiring properties to subscribe, which was September 2011. And that definitely had some impact, but it had no enforcement quality to it. So it was not as strong as the new law, which started this January at January 1, no food waste in the garbage. And with that associated fine, that has had a very big impact on the properties wanting to participate. When there's
0: an ordinance or when there's a law, that requires composting. It really makes a difference. Just listening to the property managers changing their narrative about it from, oh, I don't know if I want to compost, it seems gross and smelly, to how do we make this work? While it's not a fix-all solution, the financial incentives that come with mandatory measures can really make a big difference. In multi-storey buildings, fines that are shared equally among tenants can help combat the anonymity factor and enforcing these fines works best with a curbside system. Those are some of the key policy measures we've come across in the cities we've covered that have really had a direct positive impact on programmes. Having a strong policy framework will help steer everyone in the right direction, but it also has another great effect. It leaves program coordinators free to concentrate on doing their job, as opposed to spending their time fighting an uphill struggle.
2: Seattle is just a really leading-edge city in this. And I feel, you know, the agency I worked at previously had a you know pretty good program, but I always felt like in some ways I had to fight for recycling and composting to continue. Whereas when I started working with Seattle, I basically feel like I'm swimming as fast as I can to catch up (laughs) and it's, it's wonderful I can go as fast as I can to do as much as possible and there's still room for opportunity so it's it's really great
0: so we've come to the end of our show and it's been a great journey we've covered a lot of ground on this topic and there's a lot to take in But what we've seen throughout this show is that while multi-residential organics programmes have their challenges, it is very possible to roll out a well-running, successful scheme. The success of the programmes we covered is a result of careful planning of the system, building strong relationships with key partners, working with building managers to find solutions, spending time with focus groups to craft a successful outreach campaign, investing in communication, and taking a step-by-step approach to implementation. They each use a combination of different strategies, all tailored to suit the needs of the specific building or area that they're targeting. Your program's success is predicated on your ability to execute consistently all the strategies we discussed and to continually measure and improve your approach as you go along. And in the case of Milan especially, we can see that with the right system and approach and a supportive policy to back it up, organics recycling programs in multi-residential buildings can be rolled out with no more difficulty than any other organics recycling scheme. So, while multi-storey residential buildings can be a challenge for many cities, by combining the wealth of experiences and best practices from the leading cities, we have a great roadmap to guide us on our journey. So to everyone, keep up the great work and best of luck. That's all from the organic stream this week, I hope you enjoyed the series. Be sure to send your questions or comments. You can leave them on the Organic Stream website, organicstream.org, or on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is the orgstream. We'll be back again soon with another great episode and in the future more special editions as well.